Welcome back to Decision Making in Public Service. Um, this lecture we're going to take a tour of the Ego Tunnel along with Chapter 2 in Thomas Metzinger's book, The Ego Tunnel, The Science of the Mind, and the Myth of the Self. Up until this point, uh, we've covered the introduction in Chapter 1. Uh, I'd hope that in the previous lecture we'd get to Chapter 2 as well, but there's a lot here, uh, so I'm taking a little bit of extra time for that. And then my plan moving forward is to cover the next two big parts of the book. There's a part two, which is ideas and discoveries in the lecture, and then part three, um, which is the consciousness revolution, and hoping to devote about one lecture of peace to each of those parts so we can keep moving on for this course. But I do want to spend some time today with uh, the tour that Metzinger gives. And um, until this point, we've talked about the phenomenal self model, um, the ego tunnel, a little bit more about consciousness. And in this chapter, we talk a bit more about what would a satisfying theory of consciousness need to explain. All right. And there's such uh, there's a number of things about consciousness we would want um, a model about it to explain. And Metzinger hones in on six of them that we're going to cover for this lecture. And he's the six that he provides are uh, he lays them out in the form of problems that need to be addressed for a theory. So the first one is the one world problem or the unity of consciousness. The second is the now problem, or the appearance of a lived moment that needs to be explained. The third is the reality problem, or why you were born a naive realist. Why does it seem to you that your experience is directly accessing reality? Fourth is the ineffability problem, or what we will never be able to talk about. So this hits on the difficulty with describing first-person phenomenological experiences um, and some problems that creates for understanding consciousness. Um, we'll talk about the evolution problem or the question of what consciousness was good for. Why did we develop a consciousness? It doesn't seem like it is maybe necessary. Not all organisms that are fairly complex uh, have consciousness. So why do we have it? And finally, the sixth, the who problem or the issue of what is the entity that has conscious experience. You experience consciousness from a first-person perspective, and what is that first-person perspective? Who is that? And these problems are going to get a little bit more challenging to address as we work from the first one to the last one. But let's just jump right in. Um, the first one, again, is the one-world problem or the unity of consciousness. And to illustrate this, I'm going to read a couple quotes from the book. The first is that consciousness is a higher order form of knowledge accompanying thoughts and other mental states. So it's another level of abstract, abstraction. Second uh, is the notion of integration. Consciousness is what binds things together into a comprehensive, simultaneous whole. So consciousness both has abstract properties. It's sort of higher level experiences as opposed to just basic inputs and it also integrates a lot of information so that it is 
accessible as a whole. And uh, Metzinger talks about how this problem seems so simple that we might even often overlook it, which is the idea that um, for a world to appear to us, for it to seem like we live into, in a world, one world um, has to appear, just one. Um, you wouldn't be able to function or uh, make sense of multiple worlds at the same time. And Metzinger says the unity of consciousness is one of the major achievements of the brain. It is the not so simple phenomenological fact that all the contents of your current experience are seamlessly correlated, forming a coherent whole, the world in which you live. And um, that is your experience of having a uh, world out there that you're being a part of and you experience it as such. And your brain has been able to take all of the sensory inputs and uh, have them work together in concert in a way that this world appears to you. It's not um, completely clear why this, uh, or I guess how this world binding occurs. Um, why, how is it that our brain is able to simultaneously process all of these inputs and give us a vision of of reality, of, of one world. And one leading hypothesis that Metzinger mentions is called the dynamical core hypothesis. And the basic idea here is that consciousness arises from a functional cluster of neurons incessantly firing away. All right, so we've already established or discussed earlier that your conscious experience is an inward phenomenon. It's locally determined. It is a function of neurons firing in your brain. And the idea here is that when a number or certain neurons fire together in a uh, clustered, correlated, simultaneous way, that those neural correlates, um, the correlation of those neurons firing together, um, could give rise to consciousness. And the book talks about this as the global neural correlate of consciousness. And so um, that's the, the leading hypothesis there that Metzinger mentions. Um, and another way to think about this is from a neurocomputational approach, which views uh, the global neural correlates of consciousness as something that results from information processing in the brain, as Metzinger tells us. And this is the way that uh, neuroscientists are, think about this uh, often. This is the way that physicists often think about how, how we process information. And one way to think about this is that your brain is doing the best it can to process information in a way that gives it the best chance of survival and passing its uh, genetic information into the the next generation of humans. So conscious experience, uh, as Metzinger tells us, can thus be seen as a special form of information processing based on a globally integrated format. So if you can run with this, uh, meta this idea of your brain uh, participating in uh, processing information at its most basic level, then you can think of consciousness as the, the format 
um, that is allowing you, uh, that is accessing that information in ways that is useful at any kind of moment. Okay, so um, as part of thinking about this, there's this inherent trade-off, uh, as Metzinger tells us, between integration and segregation. So consciousness is integrated enough so that a whole world appears to you, um, but distributed enough to, so that you can identify individual things and concepts. And this also is uh, a trade-off among the neurons firing in your brain. It needs to, uh, at any single moment, a widely distributed network of neurons in the brain that forms a cloud of neurons that are doing the processing. So they're integrated, but they're not all localized in one particular part of the brain. They're also distributed. So to quote Mezinger again, uh, consciousness is a large-scale, unified phenomena emerging from a myriad of physical micro-events, specifically in the brain, as long as a sufficiently high degree of internal correlation and causal coupling allows this island of dancing micro-events, dancing synchronously, in your brain to emerge. You live in a single reality, a single unified world appears to you. So the leading hypothesis here is that neurons are firing in a synchronous way that is both integrated and segregated enough to present a world to you. Next problem that we're going to address for this chapter is the now problem, or why does a lived moment emerge to you? And to help think about this, uh, Metzinger orients us and says, quote, the biological consciousness tunnel is not a tunnel only in the simple sense of being an internal model of reality in your brain. It is also a time tunnel. It's a tunnel of presence. You have a tunnel of experiences. And this presents the challenge of what exactly is the now moment. Metzinger goes on to say, consciousness is inwardness in time. It makes the world present for you by creating a new space in your mind, the space of temporal internality, experiencing time internally. And to you, if you think about it, everything is in the now. You don't experience things that happened in the past. You don't experience things that have not yet happened. Everything to you is experienced in this moment, right now. No matter whatever you experience, it's always happening to you in this, what, uh, what you feel is a present moment. And why is this as part of what this chapter addresses? And um, Metzinger tells us that one essential function of consciousness is to help an organism stay in touch with the immediate present. And that way you can uh, more carefully and quickly uh, respond to an environment that may change fast and unpredictably. So it uh, having a sense of presence helps you as an organism navigate um, a changing environment and a rapidly changing environment, particularly in the world in which we inhabit, and allows you to respond in a in a temporal way. 
to address those changing environments. Now, as Metzinger reminds us, um, strictly speaking, no such thing as now exists in the outside world, um, which to me has continued to be a shock as I've learned this from physics. Um, but it has proved adaptive to organize the inner model of the world around such a now experience, creating a common temporal frame of reference for all the mechanisms in the brain so that they can access the same information at the same time, as Mezinger tells us. Um, so it seems like this uh, lived moment has some useful properties for us as part of development of consciousness. It helps us um, respond to a changing environment and have access to the relevant information at the same moment to help navigate that changing environment. What are some of the features of this inwardness of time, as Metzinger calls it? He gives us three. One is simultaneity. We experience things simultaneously. One is that leads to a succession of moments. So you're experiencing things simultaneously across a succession of simultaneous moments, and that these moments have a sense of duration to them. They have some sense of lasting some amount of time. But again, just like with the self, this is, a, this is an illusion. We are never directly in touch with the present. There's not a present now that's out there. This highlights, as Metzinger tells us, why philosophers use the term phenomenal experience or phenomenal consciousness, because the phenomenal now is the appearance of a now. In the absence of a objective now, we're talking about how you subjectively perceive the now. So, as Metzinger tells us, our experience of time is not an objective time measure. This does not exist but having a subjective or phenomenal experience of time is created by the conscious human brain. And actually now as I'm looking at that, I don't remember if that one's a direct quote or not, but our experience of time is not an objective time measure. It's a uh, experience that is created by our brain. And it has some utility in helping us navigate a changing environment. All right, the next problem is the reality problem or how you were born as a naive realist. And so to you, as we, those of you that have been in class, we've discussed and has been discussed in the previous lectures, this consciousness, your, uh, your ego tunnel, what you're experiencing feels like reality to you. And we talked about in an, the earlier lecture that that is because that your phenomenal self-model is transparent. You don't recognize it as such. The world just appears to you because you see through all the other mechanisms, thanks to consciousness, and a world just appears. You don't see light racing at your eyes. You don't see all the spectrums of um, energy that you can't see. Just a world appears to you thanks to the processing capacities of your brain. And how does this happen um, is what Mexinger gives us some clues to. And the basic idea here, uh, idea here 
is one that um, was mentioned in a previous lecture, which is that consciousness is a higher order form, a higher order uh, form of processing that is informed by lower level inputs, basic sensory inputs. And the the evidence suggests that we process, our brains process these visual inputs at a much faster pace than we experience conscious experience, which is why we can't poke our head out of the ego tunnel and see things for uh, how, they, how they are outside of our brains. And this relative change, relative difference in uh, processing speed, these lower level inputs being processed faster and the higher level of uh, representation of consciousness, uh, the speed is lower. And because of that, we see right through the visual inputs into our appearance of a world. And um, to kind of wrap up that section, there's a nice quote here from Metzinger where he says, because it has been optimized over millions of years, the mechanism is so fast and so reliable that you never notice its existence. It means your it makes your brain invisible to itself. You are in contact only with its content. You never see the representation as such. Therefore, you have the illusion of being directly in contact with the world. And that is how you become a naive realist, a person who thinks they are in touch with an observer independent reality. End quote. When in fact, you are not. The next problem that uh, Metzinger brings our attention to is the ineffability problem, or what we will never be able to talk about. And I alluded to this at the beginning of the lecture. This is uh, the idea that the experiences that you have as a first-person observer, phenomenal experience, phenomenal consciousness, your ability to describe those experiences uh, and recall them in enough detail is uh, is very lacking, is very limited. And so there are a lot of things that we just don't have the toolkit to describe well. And Metzinger gives us a, a couple of quotes here that I want to work through about this problem that I think are, are better than, than I can do on this. So the contents, uh, quote, the contents of consciousness can be ineffable in many different ways. You cannot explain to a blind man the redness of a rose. If the linguistic community you live in does not have a concept for a particular feeling, you may not be able to discover it in yourself or name it so as to share it with others. He continues on. Technically, this means we do not possess introspective identity criteria for many of the simplest states of consciousness. Our perceptual memory is extremely limited. You can see the difference between uh, the two closely related shades of green that they use uses of examples in the book, but you are unable consciously uh, to represent the sameness over time. So in this way, there are things about our experience that we cannot describe. The example Metzinger uses is if you're looking at two closely related shades of green, say I think number 24 and number 25 is his example. If, you, if someone puts them in front of you at the same time, you can notice the difference between green 24 and green 25. However, 
if just shown one of those, you don't, you're not able to recall if it is 24 or 25. You're not able to represent the sameness of it independently of comparing it to relatively to the other color that's available. And a lot of our sensory experiences are that way. So what do we do about this as we're trying to understand consciousness if we're not able to describe well the contents of a lot of our consciousness? This has caused all kinds of problems for philosophers and neuroscientists. And we'll return to it, um, I think, throughout the book and in these lectures. Uh, one potential, as uh, Metzinger tells us, uh, quoting here, one potential approach is to describe states as internal and continue to search for third-person observable, definable states that describes the brain states that give rise to certain subjective phenomenological states. If there are experiences that cannot be described, this may be the only way to examine them in proper detail. So, Metzinger sort of concedes that it's really hard to study these from a first-person describing them perspective and talks about some of the worries with, with instead examining these from um, definable third-person scientific states um, that give rise to those conscious experiences and would really like to be able to focus more on describing the subjective experiences. But this just may not be possible. Um, and so the strategy that is often being taken is to find the neural correlates that are related to the descriptions that we, that we do give. And, you know, this continues to create challenge for the research of consciousness, given that the descriptions of things that are self-reported um, we have a hard time self-reporting many of our experiences. The next problem is the evolution problem, or couldn't all of this have happened in the dark? And uh, as I think of it, why are we conscious anyways? Here again, uh, Metzinger gives us a few quotes from the, uh, there are a few quotes from the chapter that I think are particularly useful. So the, here's the uh, first one, quote, today we have a long list of potential candidate functions of consciousness. So why do we have consciousness? Among them are the emergence of intrinsically motivating states, the enhancement of social coordination, a strategy for improving the internal selection and resource allocation in brains that got too complex to regulate themselves, the modification and interrogation of goal hierarchies and long-term plans, retrieval of episodes from long-term memory, construction of storable representations, <laughs> the list goes on, flexibility and sophistication of behavioral control, mind reading and behavioral prediction in social interaction, conflict resolution and troubleshooting, creating a densely integrated representation of reality as a whole, setting a context, and learning in a single step. So there are a lot of candidates out there from the research, and as 
Metzinger reflects on these. He says, the evolutionary function of consciousness then must have been, uh, it makes classes of facts globally available for an organism and thereby allows it to attend to them, to think about them, and to react to them in a flexible manner that automatically takes the overall context into account. And so his idea here is that it can make whole consciousness helps make whole sets of things available to us at the same moment so that they can be attended to and thought about and then uh, can help provide the organism with a strategy uh, and be flexible in how it responds to a myriad of different types of situations. Mazinger says, it's easy to overlook the causal relevance of understanding that the fundamental computational goal of a conscious experience as a first step was to have the ability to simulate in your mind potential threats and desired outcomes and best paths or strategies to avoid potential threats and achieving desirable outcomes. So this ties back to the thinking about this from a what Metzinger calls a neurocomputational strategy and thinking about goals and uh, processing information to achieve those goals. And Metzinger here is making the argument that likely the reason um, consciousness was developed was to was from being having the need to picture in your mind different outcomes, different potential scenarios that you needed to be as an organism prepared for. Um, and then this process has continued to evolve over time with cultural evolution and um, the different types of experiences that we have as a culture. Metzinger goes on and says, this ability to use our ego tunnel to distinguish between things that only appear to us and real objective facts have become an element of our lived reality. It's part of part of our conscious experience has been trying to best simulate or best uh, uh, mimic reality. And this would allow us to better manage the actual reality and survive and, and flourish as an organism. Um, here, following Metzinger again, he says, by consciously experiencing some elements of our tunnel as mere images or thoughts about the world, we became aware of the possibility of misrepresentation. We understood that sometimes we can be wrong since reality is only a, since a specific type of appearance. As evolved representational systems, we can now represent one of the most important facts about ourselves, namely that we too are representational systems. Um, he goes on to say, the discovery of the appearance-reality distinction, what is real versus what appears to us, was possible because we realized that some of the content of our conscious minds is constructed internally and because we could introspectively apprehend the construction process. Um, the technical term here would be phenomenal opacity rather than transparency, like we've been talking about, the opposite of transparency, as Mezinger says. So here, Metzinger is saying, look, we were able to realize that what's going on in our minds isn't necessarily what's out in the world because we were able to reflect on that process, on the thinking process, on the construction of reality process. And once we were able to do that, 
we can uh, have some opacity to that phenomenal self model. We're more aware of it. We're aware that it's a it's a model of representation in our brains. In talking about the evolution problem, at the end of this, towards the end of this section, Metzinger says, the inner appearance of a fully realistic world as present in the here and now was an elegant way of creating a frame of reference and a reliable anchor for all those kinds of mental activity necessary for higher forms of intelligence. Uh, and in the quote there. And so in some way, this fully realistic world is necessary to interact and navigate a complex world that requires more intelligence to navigate. All right, now to the final problem, the who problem, or what is the entity that has conscious experience? And to cover this one, um, first is the observation that a self is not needed for a conscious experience which Metzinger talks about. Um, it's something that has become part of the experience for most people, but um, people are able either through um, extended practice and meditation, and also as a consequence of some type of uh, brain defects, um, are able to uh, experience the loss of self. So some, this can be a medical issue um, where people report with certain medical challenges that um, they do not perceive themselves as a self. And this can also be um, this experience of having consciousness without also having the ego or the I or the, uh, a defined notion of who the person or who the thing is experiencing consciousness. It's not necessary for consciousness. It can be dropped from sustained practice in uh, types of meditation. Uh, but it is one of the typical character characteristics of consciousness for humans. So with those things in mind, uh, Metzinger leaves us with a final quote from this chapter that I want to leave with you as the final uh, part of understanding the tour of the ego tunnel. Metzinger says, in evolution, this process started physically with the development of cell membranes and an immune system to define which cells in one's body were to be treated as one's own and which were intruders. Billions of years later, nervous systems were able to represent the self-world distinction on a higher level. Conscious experience then elevated this fundamental strategy of partitioning reality to a previously unknown level of complexity and intelligence. The phenomenal self was born and the conscious experience of being someone gradually emerged. A self model, an inner image of the organism as a whole, was built into the world model and this is how the consciously experienced first person perspective developed." End quote. So, Mezinger lives us with tracing this um, evolutionarily and saying that over time we developed a conscious experience for some of the reasons that we've discussed and that with this conscious experience and higher levels of complexity and intelligence, a self emerged um, as part of that experience. 
and then we have a first-person perspective. Okay, um, this went much longer than 20 minutes that I've been hoping to stick to, but I wanted to go ahead and get all of this out in one lecture. Thank you for following along, um, and if some of this is having a hard time sticking, definitely revisit the previous lectures, and from here we will move on to part two um, of Thomas Metzinger's book, and we will cover ideas and discoveries uh, across a number of, I think, pretty interesting topics. Again, thanks for following along. Until next time.